1: This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill.
2: And I'm Murtaza Hussain.
1: Well, Maz, there's a a lot of talk right now in the United States and around the world about the escalating war in Ukraine. There's a pretty dramatic situation that's been unfolding in Crimea and in the waters surrounding Crimea, and a lot of questions about where all of this is headed. In the US media, uh, for the first time in a long, long time, there was discussion of munitions called cluster bombs. And the reason that this was being talked about is because the Biden administration uh, very publicly acknowledged that it was going to be giving, and in fact has started to give Ukraine a fresh batch of cluster bombs. And these are really, really devastating, indiscriminate weapons. They're essentially flying landmines that are dropped down over large areas and they scatter into tiny bomblets. And, um, you know, I, as a young reporter, Maz, um, in 1999, I was in uh, what was then called Yugoslavia, uh, but at the time it was just Serbia and Montenegro. But I was in Serbia when the United States was leading a 78 day bombing campaign against Serbia. This, this was what was uh, referred to at the time as the Kosovo War. And the NATO bombing wasn't just happening in Kosovo, which at the time was a southern province of Serbia, but was happening throughout uh, Serbia and parts of Montenegro. And in May of 1999, I believe it was uh, May 7th, 1999, NATO warplanes conducted an attack on the southern Serbian city of Niš. And the alleged target of the attack was supposedly the the airport in Nish. But they dropped cluster bombs that then ended up hitting basically in the center of the city. And the, the, the bombs scattered and just blasted everywhere. And one of the places that these cluster munitions exploded was in a very crowded marketplace. And that attack ended up killing at least 14 civilians. um, And that was documented by Human Rights Watch. Uh, Local figures put the number much higher. But then there were subsequent deaths that occurred as a result of the bomb, Some of the the bombs not exploding when they were dropped. These so called uh, the dud bombs. And um, in fact, Serbia's you know up until two thousand and nine, there were still cluster munitions that were being recovered from various parts of the country. But when I went there, and I, I had never really seen the aftermath of a missile attack, and you know I had just started doing international reporting. And you could see when you when we walked to the marketplace some days after this bombing had happened, it, it was it was something kind of shocking because you see it almost looked like a, like a fossil in the concrete because uh, when the when the bombs hit and the charge on it hit, it almost it like spidered out and it was as, it was as though concrete was actually Play-Doh in terms of the of the scatter marks that it made and also then talk to people who had witnessed it and and it was horrifying because they described watching fellow human beings shred into meat basically they were describing how human beings looked like they had been turned into ground meat and i'm i'm sorry for such a graphic description but you know when you meet people whose loved ones were killed in this manner or their neighbors were killed in this manner it just it haunts you and i i don't know that i i would have been so sort of um uh, so closely paying attention to this particular bomb had i not spoken to people whose lives were ruined by uh cluster bombs but i i i then really studied what these were and they are they're a terrifying indiscriminate weapon and and they continue to kill years after they're actually dropped and um You know, I I often think about that trip that I took to this city of Nis in 1999 in Serbia, and I think it really gave me a very clear sense that these bombs were dropped by forces being controlled by the government of the country that I came from. And,
0: you know, you see uh, shrapnel from these cluster bombs. And in fact, in some places, it's uh, fossilized into the ground. The epicenter of the blast leaves a little crater uh, in the cement. And then you see almost like the rays of a sun going out from this epicenter uh, fossilized marks from where the shrapnel or smaller bombs from the cluster bomb spread out. And um, another concern that people have here is that some of these haven't exploded. It's like landmines sitting in hospital compounds or outside of schools or along the road. And I actually saw. Some of the cluster bombs, and I know you've been talking about that on Democracy Now! as well. But a lot of people here seem to be trying to move on with their lives, but it's always in the back of their head that they could get bombed at any moment. It really is the, the fact that civilians uh, feel here that they have been targeted, that civilian uh, infrastructure has been targeted, and so they really are afraid. And in niche, they're more afraid during the day than they are at night because that's really when NATO has hit them the heaviest.
1: You know, some years after this uh, 1999 attack, I had a chance to confront the man who was the supreme allied commander of the NATO forces during that war, and that was the U.S. General Wesley Clark. He was running for for the Democratic nomination for president in 2004. And I I chased him in New Hampshire. And then I questioned him about a number of uh, very, very terrible attacks that had taken place against civilians. And Clark admitted to me that, yes, and when I said, you know, you use depleted uranium, you use cluster bombs, and he said to me, sure did. And then I asked him directly about the cluster bombing of the niche marketplace. And what about the bombing of the niche marketplace with cluster bombs? Well, shredding
0: human beings. It was terrible. But you know, um, in that instance, if we've got the same incident, there was a cluster bomb that opened prematurely. It was an accident. And every one of these incidents was fully investigated. Um, All of the material from the Yugoslav government was given to the International Criminal Tribunal. Plus, as the NATO commander, I made a full report to the International Criminal Tribunal. And it was all investigated. The pilots who did it, nobody could have felt worse than the pilots who did it. And I I got a letter from a man in Serbia who said, you killed my granddaughter on the schoolyard at Nish. I know how he must have felt. And I felt so helpless about it. And every night, when I, before I let those bombs go, I prayed that we wouldn't kill innocent people. But unfortunately, when you're at war, terrible things happen, even when you don't want
1: to. I was doing that reporting for Democracy Now!, both the confrontation of Wesley Clark and the reporting that I had done during the 1999 NATO bombing. And then uh, when I did uh, my, my book and film Dirty Wars, I then reported on President Obama. Uh, authorizing a cruise missile attack on a village in yemen and it killed several dozen people the majority of them women and children and maz you have a piece uh, that you wrote recently at the intercept where you're looking at the recent impact of cluster munitions in ukraine and of course Ukraine and Russia both have been known to use cluster bombs um, in Ukraine. Uh, Human Rights Watch documented that as far back as 2014, the Ukrainian government forces were using cluster bombs. We, of course, have also seen these reports that Russia is using them. But Maz, talk a little bit about what you reported, what Human Rights Watch is saying about the current situation with cluster munitions and the devastation that they're wreaking on Ukraine right now.
2: Sure. So Russia has heavily used cluster munitions during its invasion of Ukraine. But the Ukrainian military has also employed them in territories where Russia controls. And Human Rights Watch did a report based on a series of attacks last year in the town of Izium by the Ukrainian military, and that town was at the time controlled by Russia. And it documented the killing of eight Ukrainian civilians by Ukrainian cluster munition usage, and about the wounding of about 15 more. That town was liberated by the Ukrainian military, but there are other territories, many, many other territories under control of Russia at the moment, which the Ukrainian military now has requested and received delivery of cluster munitions in order to help facilitate an offensive to take them back. So as you mentioned, and as we're going to discuss further, cluster munitions, when they're used, they're not just uh, the violence and the devastation is not limited to the time that the war is taking place. They can detonate. Months or years later, uh, there have been cases of, you know, cluster munitions from the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, which still detonate today. Now the Ukrainian military for this offensive is employing these weapons provided by the United States, and they've already killed Ukrainian civilians. And we're almost certain that for many, many years to come, as they're employed, they're going to continue killing civilians for years and years. And uh, the same devastation that you witness witnessed in Nish. Is going to keep taking place even after attention moves from this war. When this war is over and normal life goes back, uh, we're going to be seeing casualties and wounding of individuals for a very, very long time to come. You
1: know, Maz, when when uh, as I was watching the way that this played out in the U.S. media and the among the political classes, and and we will also talk later about some of the legislative efforts that uh, that took place where some Democrats and some Republicans actually tried to block. Uh, Biden from transferring these cluster munitions to Ukraine. And there was a re- recent episode of Deconstructed that was really excellent um, describing why those legislative efforts failed. But as I as I watched part of the commentary where where we heard people arguing that, well, Russia is using cluster bombs, so it's only fair that Ukraine get to use cluster bombs, my mind uh, traveled back to the days immediately following 9-11. When, when there was the National Prayer Service and the minister who gave remarks, this is just three days after 9-11, said, let us not become the evil we deplore. And, and it's always stuck with me. And in fact, Barbara Lee, who we've had on the program, the, the, the Democratic congressperson from California, from the Bay Area in California, when she then, that same day, September 14th, 2001, gave her speech on the House floor, when she became the only member of Congress to vote against the authorization for the use of military force, this was the blank check given to Bush and Cheney to wage their global war, she also cited those remarks, let us not become the evil we deplore, in warning against going too far in the U.S. response to 9-11. And I think Barbara Lee and we've talked about this before has been proven prophetic and right in her opposition. And I think people that are are raising the alarm bells of caution about the US posture on Ukraine are going to be proven to be right too. This logic that because a nefarious force does something evil that our response to it should be to do the same or to use the same kind of munitions and of course it's going to be ukrainian civilians that pay the ultimate price for this that i think it's sometimes worth remembering those people like barbara lee or the minister at the national prayer service who actually taught us something before it was too late and not enough people listened
2: well it's very difficult and unpopular to make a point like that at the moment when emotions are most high and certainly there are justifiably a lot of strong emotions about the russian invasion of ukraine and all the devastation that's caused and yet we can't uh, abandon if the war is being fought for anything beyond just a narrow political interest we can't abandon our principles and the the entire basis that we're you know making a moral case to defend ukraine or the western countries making a moral case to defend ukraine and it's particularly egregious in this case because there's been so much international effort over the past decade and a half to ban cluster munitions globally or to stigmatize their usage, specifically in response to scenes like what you witnessed in Nish many years ago uh, that have taken place all over the world because of these weapons. And to see the U.S. government facilitating the transmission and use of these weapons now in Ukraine in a war where ostensibly they're fighting to defend liberal democracy in, in their own framing of it. It's very disheartening and it's actually going to lower the stigma in years to come when countries want to employ these weapons and they say, hey, why are you scolding us for doing this or why are you morally blaming us for using it? You yourself used it in Ukraine. You helped facilitate the use in Ukraine. So the knock-on effects can be even beyond what we're seeing in Eastern Europe. And And Maz, actually we're joined now by one of those
1: people that you're talking about who has spent years trying to raise awareness about the impact of cluster bombs and and trying to agitate to get the United States. Russia, other countries to actually uh, sign on to this convention, along with 123 other countries saying, we will not manufacture or use these cluster bombs. And I'm talking about Mark Golasco. He's the military advisor at POX, which is a Dutch NGO. Um, he works there to protect civilians in armed conflict. Uh, he was also a war crimes investigator for the United Nations in Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. He's following the developments in Ukraine with Russia's war uh, very, very closely. He also co-hosts his own podcast called the Civilian Protection Podcast. Um, that's part of Civilians in Conflict, which is a U.S.-based NGO. Mark Glasgow, thanks so much for joining us here on Intercepted.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you caring about this so much.
1: So, Mark, I'm going to ask you to explain the basic fundamental issue of what cluster munitions are, uh, the impact that they have when they're used, uh, but also the impact that they continue to have if they are dropped and they don't actually explode. But first, I just wanted to get your reaction to the position that the Biden White House has taken here. Um, A lot of the social media commentary and uh, commentary from people who are supportive of transferring the cluster munitions to Ukraine um, basically boils down to whatever weapons Ukraine needs to fight off this illegal invasion, we should give them. And when you get to a more granular level, people will say, well, Russia is using these also, so it's only fair that Ukraine be able to use them as well. But the Biden White House has, has come out with a defense of transferring these cluster munitions to Ukraine. So first of all, just your response to what Biden personally has been saying and the position of the administration.
3: Well, look, I just want to start by saying I am fully supportive of Ukraine and their defense in this unlawful invasion by Russia. But there have to be lines drawn. There must be limits. And transferring a weapon that has been banned by 123 states Including two thirds of NATO is just a, a step too far, a bridge too far, and and honestly, I think is morally bankrupt. Particularly when you look at the Biden administration and and you know the White House's response when it was revealed that Russia was using cluster bombs. And and let's be clear here, you know, Russia has used cluster bombs throughout this conflict. They've used them to target civilians. There was one incident in twenty twenty two the single largest number of civilians killed by Russia was in uh, a cluster bomb strike. It was in the city of Kramatorsk. There was a, a train station and 58 civilians were killed by Russian cluster bombs in that attack. And the Biden administration's response when it first came out that the Russians were using cluster bombs was, hey, this is potentially a war crime. And so the White House sees Russia's use of cluster munitions as a war crime but we're perfectly fine with sending them to Ukraine, which for me is just a morally bankrupt position and uh, I think highly questionable. And so I'm, I'm very troubled by it. I've been looking at cluster bombs for the past 20 years. The US has not used them uh, since 2003. Uh, there, there was one incident in 2009 uh, when a single weapon was used. Uh, but in 20 years of war against ISIS and others, the US has not used these weapons. And so I'm, I'm shocked and, and really incredibly dismayed, particularly with a, a Democratic president, which has been so supportive of the different uh, weapon bans uh, and, and no use. And, and so I'm just uh, very upset, as you can tell.
1: Walk us through the mechanics of what cluster munitions are, how they function, and, and what they do when they hit.
3: So a cluster munition, or as, as many people call them, a cluster bomb. Uh, is basically a large carrier, right? It's a a big bomb. So it can be an artillery shell, it can be a rocket, or it can be an aerial bomb dropped by a plane. And so, you know, it's kind of this mother bomb. And when it goes over the target, it opens up and it releases anywhere from dozens to hundreds of smaller bombs. And and these are called either bomblets or submunitions by the military. And they pretty much use that interchangeably. And the idea here is that it gives the military a reach and an economy of force, right? So you're using one bomb to drop many, many bombs. And, and that's great. You know, From the military's perspective, that's that gives them a, an ability to, to reach out and drop a lot of munitions in a single strike so they don't have to send many aircraft or, or many munitions over, and it's a lot cheaper and easier. And what the military likes about them is also what's problematic about them, right? So they cover a very large area. This is a saturation weapon. Right? This is not a precision weapon like we see, you know, a bomb going into a into a window, for example, or taking a tank out uh, directly. You're covering about a football field with, you know, potentially hundreds of these small bombs, and that's great if you've got tanks or infantry in the field that you're trying to attack. Not so great if you're using it in a populated area or near a populated area, you know, a city or a town or whatnot. So you have a problem, first of all, during the attack, right? So when the strike happens and the mother bomb opens up, that that cargo section opens up, and all of these hundreds of bombs come down, now they may hit a tank, they may hit some infantry, but you also have a very high potential of civilian harm for them to come down and hit civilians to hit homes, uh, et cetera. And so that's the first problem, right? The first problem is at the time of use. It's such a wide area of effect. The second problem is these bombs don't work very well, okay? They're, they have a very high what's called dud rate or, or unexploded rate. So just think about it like anything else that you go out and buy, right? You buy a television and electronic shop and you take it home, you plug it in, TV works, super. But, you know, Some of those TVs may have had some problems in the manufacturing process, and and that's why you have warranties. You plug it in, it doesn't work, you bring it back to the shop. Bombs, you're not bringing them back to the shop. And not only that, we're not talking about a low dud rate here, we're talking about fairly high dud rates, which leave large, large minefields on the ground. Now when we talk about the specific munition that the US is sending, it's the M864, and, and please excuse me, right? we're going to throw some numbers out here, and I'm going to try not to be too technical, but it's important to have an understanding, a baseline of some of the technicalities here, because part of the Biden administration's argument really lies on the technical lines. So the M864 is an artillery shell. And inside the M864, you have 72 what are called DPICMs, dual purpose, improved conventional munitions. Now it's it's dual purpose because it has both an anti armor and an anti personnel capability. Right, so it's got a shape charge in it that will blow through about two and a half inches of armor, and then when the munition explodes, you're you're sending out fragments out to about fifty feet. So they're 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 lethal to about fifty feet. And inside the M864 are these seventy two DPICMs, and you have two types: the M42 and the M46. It's really immaterial here, the difference between the two. The 46 is a little bit thicker, has a little bit more of an anti personnel capability. But when the weapon is fired, there are a number of steps that must happen for it to operate correctly. All right, so the, the carrier munition opens up, the base slides off, the 72 uh, small D sized battery bomblets come out, and they have these nylon ribbon stabilizers on them. And the nylon ribbon spins. And that's going to do two things, right? One, it's going to stabilize the munition so it hits at the right angle because if they hit at anything more than a 45-degree angle, they won't explode. But also when the ribbon spins, it arms the bomb. And if that ribbon gets caught up, doesn't spin correctly, et cetera, the, the, the bomb won't, won't operate correctly. And then they also get caught in trees and in vegetation, et cetera. So you've got, you've got a problem with that. But that process of arming the munition and getting it to finally activate is highly problematic because many of those steps sometimes don't happen. The bombs hit each other in the air, and then they fail. And the failure rate, according to the White House, is 2.35%. The problem with that is, that's just bullshit. The military's own numbers from US testing for the specific munition that we're talking about here, the M42 and M46 DPICMs, is actually 14%. And then we have another DPICM that the US has that that's not being used here. Uh, it, you know, It may be sent eventually. And that has even higher. That has a 23%. But but let's just deal with a 14% dud rate for, for a moment. We're sending hundreds of thousands of these artillery shells. For every 100,000 artillery shells, that is a million unexploded cluster munitions on the ground. Those are cluster munitions that kids can pick up. People can get hurt uh, when they go back to their home, go back to their farm. And not only that, we also need to talk about the military utility of this. I think we need to get into that.
2: One thing I did want to ask you, Mark, is you mentioned that the last time the U.S. used cluster bombs was in 2009. Do we know anything about the circumstances of that employment of cluster munitions and why the U.S. military has formally moved away from using the weapons in battlefields?
3: Okay, so the, the last time that the U.S. used cluster munitions at all was a single strike in 2009. But I, I think it's important to recognize that the last time that the U.S. used DPICMs was 2003. Okay, so we haven't used those in 20 years. And when we used DPICMs, that was an extreme use. So when we look back at the Iraq invasion in 2003... In the Iraq invasion, the US used about 2 million DPI-CMs, all right? So, and when you look at a 14% dud rate, that's a lot of of unexploded bombs on the ground. In the first Gulf War in 1991, we actually used 13 million. So, an extraordinarily high number of unexploded weapons on the ground. There was a single cluster strike in 2009 in Yemen uh, that was recorded. There was an investigation... By uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, into the attack, uh, we only know that cluster munitions were used in Yemen in that single strike because of the duds that were found by by HRW researchers.
1: Mark, can I just uh, intervene on on, on that? Um, I, um, in my book Dirty Wars and Film, one of the central focuses of it was this cluster bomb strike in in it was in the Yemeni village of Al Majla. It was a, a strike that was carried out under the direction of Admiral William McRaven, who at the time was the commander of the Joint Special Operations Command. Um, and before we talk about actually what happened there, apparently Obama himself was was furious when he realized that it had killed uh, nearly three dozen women and children. The, the official intelligence that had been presented to the president by JSOC was that this was an Al Qaeda training camp. And it does seem as though there were some individuals um, among the dead who had connections to Al Qaeda. But the the majority of the people that were killed in that strike were documented to have been civilians. And and actually, it was a Yemeni journalist named Abdullah Haider Shaya, who went to that scene. And he was the individual who photographed what you were describing, the Uh, some of the unexploded munitions, but also some of the fragments that were there. So researchers, initially it was Amnesty International, was able to find serial numbers on some of the weapons, and then it became indisputable that this was a U.S. strike. And what was interesting about it, beyond uh, the, the, the fact that you're saying they hadn't used them from 2003 until that point, was that the initial story was that Yemen, that the Yemeni government of of Ali Abdullah Saleh, that they had actually conducted a strike against al-Qaeda, and it was a great success. And only because of this Yemeni journalist, and then Amnesty International, and then Human Rights Watch, did the world know that, in fact, the U.S. had... Uh, in fact, carried out this cluster bomb attack, and it was done with cruise missiles, um, which which raises an issue that you were talking about before. Cluster munitions are, are quite versatile. They can be dropped from a variety of platforms. But in the case of Yemen and this village, it was about three dozen civilians who died, um, allegations of between 11 and 14 people that the U.S. alleged were al-Qaeda. Um, but it was a cruise missile attack that Obama had authorized based on intelligence from JSOC
3: hey i, I want to thank you for the clarification on that and and it raises an important point where you know the u s has not transferred cluster munitions to other countries uh even as they've requested them the The Saudis for example uh, have asked the u s for cluster munition transfers, and that never happened because the u s was so concerned with the the potential civilian harm and so it's it's quite shocking to me that that we've put all that aside now
2: Mark, have you seen? In recent years, have we seen the use of cluster munitions in other conflicts around the world? I know that they were rumored to be used in Israel's war uh, in Lebanon in 2006 and also by Russia and Georgia. How has the use of cluster munitions looked in those conflicts in terms of civilian harm?
3: Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's more than a rumor. It's it's a reality. We've seen widespread use of cluster munitions in both the, the war in Lebanon by, by Israel uh, in 2006. I was there and I investigated it. And also by the Russians in Georgia. I was there in 2008 and found submunitions there. And uh, it wasn't just the Russians, it was also the Georgians. Uh, and the Georgians actually fired DPICMs on the Russians. And there were massive and catastrophic failures of the Georgian DPICMs, which eventually completely littered uh, parts of the Georgian countryside and never actually made it to the area where Russian forces were. And then, you know, I was for two years on the Syrian war crimes team for the United Nations and investigated just shockingly widespread use of cluster munitions by the Russians throughout Syria. And we we unfortunately now have a situation where you have these countries that are are contaminated by these munitions and civilians continue to die and die from them. I mean, in fact, you know, in both Laos and Cambodia. Uh, we still see civilians being killed uh, from the duds from the Vietnam War. Uh, So these weapons are persistent. And my concern is they will continue to kill for for decades. But you're absolutely right. There has been widespread use. The Israelis fired several million uh, submunitions into Lebanon. I was in southern Lebanon in uh, 2006 And not only did I find uh, just dozens of civilian casualties at the time of use, but when I was there in in 2006, and then later in subsequent investigations, we continued to find civilians, particularly children, you know, who see these almost as a toy-like object, you know, pick them up and play with them. So continue to see uh, Lebanese children uh, harmed by these. And, you know, it wasn't just Israel firing them into Lebanon. I mean, Hezbollah also fired... Uh, some submunitions into Israel. So there are parts of northern Israel that also had to deal with this. And, you know, there's just shocking number of use by the Russians in, in both Georgia and in Syria. So it, it's unfortunate. And this is partly why, you know, the world has banned together and 123 nations have agreed that these weapons must be outlawed. Yeah, and you know the, the the U.S.,
1: Russia, and Ukraine. None of those three countries um, have ratified that treaty. Um, but I'm I'm curious because we're you know we're talking from an American perspective. What is the U.S. defense mark of not signing that convention? Uh, when so many countries around the world have agreed that these are essentially flying landmines that continue to maim children across the globe when they're used?
3: Yeah, so there had been a desire by the US to uh, to, to come onto the treaty when it was initially proposed. But there was a lot of discussion inside the administration, uh, particularly pushed by the US military concern of Russia and China, and the need to have munitions that cover wide areas uh, in case you have you know these just Large numbers of of tanks and soldiers coming into areas where uh, American uh, troops were going to combat them, and so basically, you know, this, you know, much like the argument that the U.S. has made for not outlawing landmines based on the Ottawa Treaty banning banning landmines, which again, most of the world has signed up to, you know, this concern that there's going to be some uh, some existential war somewhere that we're going to need to use these legacy munitions. Uh, and rely upon them. So in, in Korea, for example, you know, there's this concern that so much of the Korean DMZ has been mined, and so the US continues to rely on landmines there. But also that we would need to rely on cluster munitions in, in any conflict against uh, the Russians or Chinese, which really strikes me when we see the direction that the US military is actually going, right, with their weapons and weapon developments. And, and the replacement munitions... That have been developed to replace these these uh, DPICM submunitions. You know the U.S. has been relying on very high tech precision weapons, and cluster bombs are low tech, unguided, and also do not operate correctly. Right, they don't work well. You've got fourteen percent of them don't blow up, which is not a good thing. You may get economy of force, but you have to use so many of them that you then have contaminated area that you can't even maneuver through. And so with the, the shift in, in the US's uh, production and procurement to more precision munitions, it's shocking to me that we would say, no, we have to rely on, on these legacy weapons that are so problematic. Uh, so that's basically what the position has been. And you know, we in the NGO community have been hoping that there would be some, uh, some movement by the Biden administration in both the, the landmine ban and cluster ban. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't seen that happen.
2: You know, recently there's been a lot of coverage of this decision to transfer cluster weapons to Ukraine, which has been very favorable to the decision. Uh, I want to read you a particular quote from the Wall Street Journal's editorial board that said that our only criticism of this decision is that it could have done more good earlier. A lot of the case for people made for transferring the weapons to Ukraine is that it's their own calculations, their territory, and uh, they need to determine what their needs are in the context of this conflict themselves. Uh, what do you say to that argument in terms of the viewed in juxtaposition with a broader campaign to ban cluster missions globally?
3: Yes, yeah, so I have two issues uh, when we look at you know this statement of why Ukraine needs to have, have these banned weapons. Uh, the first is I, I really push back strongly on the military utility of the actual munition. So when you look at the US use of DPICM in the uh, Iraq invasion, there was an after action report put out by the 3rd Infantry Division where they wrote and actually called the specific weapon that the US is sending to Ukraine, they called it a loser, all right? A loser. This is what the US military called it. And they questioned, they wrote in it, is it a legacy of the, of the Cold War? And in their after action report, they they spoke about how they they didn't want to use it because the dud rate was, was so much higher than advertised, and they had problems maneuvering through it. You know, when you drop these weapons, the idea is you're gonna attack the, the, the enemy, and then your forces will will fight through. Well, let's imagine now that your Ukrainian forces and you're gonna drop you know hundreds and, and potentially thousands, if not millions, of these onto the trench lines of the Russians and then assault through them. Suddenly you have a minefield that you're gonna you're gonna transit through. And my concern is more Ukrainian soldiers may be killed by these munitions after they've been dropped and assault through than you kill Russian soldiers on the initial, the initial attack. You know, when we look at the way that the United States Marine Corps had problems maneuvering and into different areas of Iraq because uh, there was uh, very poor communications of where the US Army had used DPICMs. And if you look at uh, the Human Rights Watch report that I co-authored, it's called Off Target, and uh, that speaks about the conduct of the war in, in 2003, right? It goes through the Iraq invasion and, and how the US and Iraqis fought, and also the UK. And it really speaks to some of these problems from a military point of view. And we interviewed British soldiers, for example, who told us that they felt more likely to use these submunitions uh, because they, they felt that the dud rate was lower than it actually was. And then after the use, they saw it was so problematic And so many of their forces got caught in these minefields and then had to extricate themselves. And so that's one concern, right, from a a military utility perspective. The other concern really goes to, uh, I think, a fairly interesting article that Max Boot put out in the Washington Post. And I really appreciate Max, you know, certainly a a conservative commentator, but a a never-Trumper for sure. And, you know, Max, unfortunately, puts forward this idea... That because Ukrainians have voted for Zelensky, and because Ukrainians have accepted, you know, the, their leadership and their government, that the decisions by that government really are, are should not be questioned. And uh, you know, from a, a democratic perspective, I find that highly problematic. You know, that's like saying that just because people in Florida voted for Ron DeSantis, and he has now uh, turned the Sunshine State into the Gunshine State, where anyone can carry a gun. Uh, If you're killed by a gun in Florida, well, um, too too bad for you. You voted for the guy, or or somebody else voted for the guy. So just because uh, Zelensky and others may have made this decision that, hey, you know we need these weapons because people voted for us, I don't think that that is a particularly persuasive answer to me. So yeah, I've I've got a lot of problems with the idea of Ukraine so desperately needing cluster munitions as a bridge weapon from now when they've run out of artillery shells until the point when NATO and others are able to to provide them. Because one, these weapons are banned by a lot of states for a reason, all right? They should not be used because of their foreseeable civilian harm, okay? That's That's the first thing. And then two, the idea that you have continued potential for civilian harm for years, if not decades. And last, it's very difficult to use these weapons in a lawful manner. According to international law, you've got a couple of principles here. You have distinction and you have proportionality. Distinction is the idea that any attack, any weapon that that is going to be used, you have to be able to distinguish between a military object that you're targeting and civilians that may be in the area. And that's just not possible with cluster bombs, right? Because cluster bombs cover such a wide area, And they're not individually targetable. So distinction goes right out the window. And then proportionality. This idea that the military gain in any attack cannot be outweighed by the civilian harm. And I see that as being very, very difficult with cluster munitions. Because one, at the time of use, you have so much chance for widespread civilian harm. But even if we believe that the Ukrainians are going to keep their word And only use cluster munitions in areas out in the countryside where there are no civilians. I think the problem is that eventually you're going to have such a large minefield throughout the country. People are going to return home. You know, I was in Lebanon in 2006. I was at people's homes. The government was not able to keep people in the north as soon as the the ceasefire went into effect. People flowed down into the south in Lebanon immediately. They went to their homes and they were blown up by cluster bombs that were sitting there in their yards.
1: You know, Mark, I've debated Max Boot on CNN before and I've, I've argued with him. He actually blocked me on Twitter. Yes, he's a he's a never-Trumper, and I'm not gonna get into an ad hominem thing at all because he's not here to defend himself, but I'll just point out he he's taken this line on many conflicts before include, and I find it very, very problematic, um, including, you know, he's a ride or die, you know, Bush Cheney guy. And this was also the argument he was making about the Iraq war. Oh, this is part of a democratic process. It's, it's, it's as though, and, and it's not just back's boot, this is a lot of people. It's as though, well, whatever Zelensky says or whatever Ukraine says that we as Americans somehow have an obligation to just give them everything they ask for, completely false. We have a moral obligation, uh, not to mention civic duty, to hold our own government accountable. And regardless of, you know, I, I also think that what Russia is doing is utterly criminal. I'm entirely opposed to their invasion. And at the same time, I'm deeply disturbed by some of the domestic policies of Zelensky. And I'm extraordinarily disturbed by some of the us Position toward Ukraine. One of the things I've been following very closely, and I know this is an issue that you pay a lot of attention to, also, uh, Mark, is Ukraine has been agitating to get Tier One drones from the United States, the the Gray Eagle and and others. And I think that you know it's our job as responsible citizens to pay attention what weapon systems is our government willing to transfer to other governments? What checks are in place to ensure that they aren't going to escalate situations to a point where we have nuclear war? Or they're not going to result in decades down the line of maiming of of women and children and civilians, other civilians, from from cluster munitions? And I, I find that argument, it seems like you do too, really really problematic the notion that well if ukraine says that they need it then it's our obligation and that the ukrainians are going to be paying the price for it down the line i think it strips us of our moral agency particularly as americans to say to our government oh hold on a second here is this morally the right thing for us to do it's not just about strategy it's also about what is right in this world and i i, I think all of us have a moral obligation to pay attention to what our government is doing.
3: Absolutely. You know, we have a responsibility as citizens to ensure that there are limits to what our government does. I mean, and and we haven't given the Ukrainians everything, right? You know, they they asked for no-fly zones early in this conflict and the United States said no. So we have said no. The problem is that we're saying yes now and I think that that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: You know, Mark, I want to ask given what you articulated in terms of the military ineffectiveness of these munitions and also, of course, the civilian harm that they've caused in many conflicts, why has their use continued to be relatively persistent over so many years? I think that the Actual origins of cluster bombs, if I'm right, goes back somewhere near World War II. And, you know, despite the U.S. and some other countries uh, moving away from their use or in some cases signing the convention against them, there are still countries that we see in Ukraine today, but also uh, Saudi Arabia recently attempting to use cluster munitions. What is the continued attraction of them if they're not that useful on on the battlefield?
3: Yeah, so, you know, cluster bombs are, are, are cheap and easy. And militaries like cheap and easy, right? You, you can get a lot of bang for your buck. And so that idea of economy of force sending one bomb over and having an outsize effect by by dropping hundreds of smaller bombs onto an area is something that's very appealing to militaries. And unfortunately, that thing that appeals to them has a, a human cost and, and a foreseeable civilian harm. And we see continued use by a lot of just uh, problematic actors right when we look at the countries that have been employing cluster bombs you know we're 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 talking about those that are continuing to engage in conduct that is potentially unlawful right we're looking at at Israel in Lebanon in 06 we're looking at the Russians in multiple conflicts in in Georgia and throughout the conflict in Syria right we're 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 looking at at Saudi Arabia in their conflict in in Yemen and that's, I don't think that's a, a group that the United States wants to, or, or, or should be, uh, be proud to be lumped into in, in, in every case, uh, particularly with the widespread Russian use. And because we really haven't used these since 2003, yes, uh, obviously the, the incident in, in Yemen, the use by the US, they're highly problematic. But that single use aside, you know, 20 years of no use by the United States, when the US has been involved in 20 years of war, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, fighting against the Taliban, fighting against ISIS. If these weapons are so good, why haven't we used them in those conflicts? And so I'm deeply troubled by this. You know, I was part of the group that worked for the the cluster bomb ban. A lot of the research I did on the ground in in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Georgia, and elsewhere went on to inform the decision by states to eventually outlaw these munitions when the treaty was put forth in 2007 and then signed in in 2008 in Oslo and unfortunately we then saw immediate use in, in 2008 in the war in Georgia and then we've seen continued use by by some problematic states and this is not the kind of thing that I want my country to be involved in anymore
1: hmm. i want i want to follow up uh, with you on on something i was talking about earlier about drones and you know, as as you're certainly well aware, Mark, you follow this as close as anyone. Russia uh, sort of fell behind many other countries in the production of its own, for lack of a better term, let's say tier one drones. China is making very, very advanced drones. They're actively trying to compete with the US manufacturers of the, the top tier drones that the US military and the CIA uses. But what we've seen uh, Russia doing is using uh, some combination of Turkish and Iranian drones. And the, the Iranian drones in particular, the Shahed drones that uh, Russia has been using, they're using them in these kind of swarm or cluster attacks where you have so-called kamikaze drones that have a single munition on them. And, and it's just as it sounds like that the drones are meant to actually detonate upon striking a target. And, and we've seen uh, multiple times uh, Russia using a whole fleet of them basically to then descend on buildings they've been used in civilian attacks they've been used in military attacks. Ukraine does have some uh, robust larger drones. they're also starting to use smaller drones but but give us a, a sense of where you see all of this going because I think you and I and others who were really involved with trying to raise warning bells against the proliferation of these remotely piloted aircraft and other vehicles that could be used to uh, strike without having boots on the ground, et cetera, that we're, we're really seeing the future is in front of us right now with uh, drone warfare and much smaller deadly drones. Talk talk a bit about that.
3: Yeah. So I look at the, the conflict in Ukraine right now, and I see this very much akin to the development of aircraft in warfare and we're right now in world war 1 when aircraft first started to to fly in in the first world war they would fly over over an area and you would see pilots dropping a hand grenade out of the aircraft onto to forces on the ground and that eventually ramped up to airplanes carrying bombs and, and dropping them onto cities in the first world war we then moved uh, to the second world war where you had you know massive strategic bombing campaign Against cities, you know the Germans obviously hitting hitting London throughout the conflict, the U.S. And, and its allies hitting hitting Japan and Germany, and that just continued to advance. And now we just you know have this expectation of aircraft being used in in combat and dropping weapons. I see very much the same thing with drones, uh, where we see that we're now in this point where Ukraine is using these these kind of very small civilian kind of hobbyist drones dropping bombs. Uh, onto tanks one by one. Uh, the Russians are, are are using these, you know, kamikaze drones. But we're going to we're moving to a point now where I think that that drones are going to become such a pervasive part of warfare, such an accepted, uh, w- which is of grave concern to me, such an accepted thing that at some point we're probably going to see drones move to to a point where not just the United States. Is conducting drone strikes out in outer area, uh, out of area conflicts. You know where we see drones flown and and drop munitions in in conflicts. And and, and you know what's going to happen when we see uh, China, for example, uh, employ drones in some country. You know how are we going to react to that when we have been doing that and have set the standard? Uh, so yeah, I, I see this very much as the very beginning of acceptable drone warfare, and it's only going to increase the. Investment by militaries is exploding, and it's not just aerial drones. Right on the 16th of July, uh, we saw the Ukrainians use drones from the sea. Okay, so so basically ship drones uh, to attack the Kerch Bridge. We're also going to be seeing drones on the ground. You know, uh, we already have in the U.S. military on armored vehicles where the uh, machine guns on turrets are remotely operated by the, by the person inside. We're soon going to be seeing remotely operated tanks and armored vehicles on the battlefield. Uh, so drones are not going to be limited just to the air. Uh, it's, it's very much almost like a Star Trek episode uh, where we see at some point uh, you're going to have, you know, a computer controlling the enterprise, right? Flying through space, blowing away things. And uh, I think we should all be very concerned. And as citizens, we have a responsibility to understand what our government is doing and to 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 keep them in check.
2: So Mark, you spent a lot of time in war zones where weapons like this have been used and documenting the aftermath uh, when the guns go silent about what takes place and how uh, these bombs can cause lasting harm or lasting impediments to people being able to live normal lives in regions they are used. There was a Human Rights Watch report about previous use of cluster munitions in Ukraine uh, in Russian-occupied regions which were fired by the Ukrainian military and resulted in killing of some Ukrainian civilians. And likewise, Russian use of clustering munitions in Ukraine and how they've impacted civilians uh, very, very grievously. You know, years down the line, when the conflict ends, what are some of the dangers and some of the lasting effects that we could expect to see uh, Ukrainian civilians facing even when the actual conflict taking place today comes to an end?
3: There is no doubt in my mind that Ukrainian civilians are going to be killed for decades by the unexploded cluster bombs that are going to be laying on the ground uh, in different areas of Ukraine. Absolutely no doubt. We, we just have to look at, at, at history and, and how it's happened in other countries, right? When you look at the number of people in Laos and Cambodia that are still being killed today in 2023 from cluster bombs dropped during the Vietnam War, I think that should give us all pause and we should question any use of cluster bombs today and in the future. And understand, this is why 123 nations joined together and agreed to outlaw these weapons. This is why over two-thirds of NATO has agreed to outlaw these weapons, All right? We're looking at massive fields of cluster bombs in Iraq still today from the American use during the first Gulf War in 1991, when we dropped 13 million, all right, a shocking number of weapons on the ground. You know, people, people say to me, hey, Mark, why shouldn't we transfer these weapons to the Ukrainians, right? Look, the Russians have used them there. Yes, the Ukrainians have used a small number of legacy bombs that they had and some that they purchased from, from Turkey. But the reality is the country is already contaminated. And my response is, we don't have to contribute to that contamination you're talking about adding millions of additional cluster bombs on the ground millions of these de facto landmines that one the military can come into contact with right the ukrainian army could die but two civilians ukrainian civilians are going to go they're going to walk home they're going to their kids are going to pick them up they're not going to know what it is and and they're going to be killed and this is going to happen for decades this is something that that we know will happen for decades and so why should the united states contribute to that contamination and create an even larger not only civilian but also ecological harm right i don't think that people consider the ecological harm as well you've got farms that are are not going to be not going to be able to be used you've got water that's going to get contaminated there is just a huge number of concerns for the use of this specific weapon and i think this was a huge mistake by the biden administration and Unfortunate that the president would make this decision.
1: You know, e- echoing some of what you're saying, uh, we've we've heard uh, some Democrats and some Republicans also on Capitol Hill raising a ruckus about this very issue, albeit from their own. Perspectives, but there is pending legislation, amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act. One of the amendments was introduced by Representative Sarah Jacobs, a Democrat from California, and Ilhan Omar, also a Democrat, but from Minnesota. And uh, in her statement, defending her uh, amendment and asking her colleagues to sign on to it. Representative Omar said, quote, if the U.S. is going to be a leader on international human rights, we must not participate in human rights abuses. We can support the people of Ukraine in their freedom struggle while also opposing violations of international law. Perhaps most notable about this is that there's been very, very little opposition to any of the Biden administration's policies on Ukraine from Democrats. Um, Much of it has come from the Freedom Caucus Republicans. But Mark, talk about the amendments that are being proposed right now, not just Jacobs and Ilhan Omar, but also from the Republicans and and what's at the center of them.
3: Sure. Yeah. So I I have to give just huge kudos to Sarah Jacobs and Ilhan Omar uh, for their leadership in holding the Biden administration to account. And and really doing the due diligence of uh, a democratic society, and and making sure that the wishes of the people are are followed, and and we do the right thing, right? That that we are a moral society. Uh, but it's there. There were three amendments put forward in the National Defense Authorization Act uh, this year on cluster munitions. Uh, one was from Representative Turner from Ohio, a, a Republican, and that amendment was to prohibit any funds for the demilitarization of cluster munitions unless there's a replacement. And and let me explain what that means. So every weapon, all right, it's not just cluster bombs. Every weapon has a shelf life. And when that weapon meets the end of its shelf life, it has to be demilitarized, right? It it has to be taken apart, recycled, and removed from the US inventory. Same thing with cluster bombs. And his amendment was that, hey, we're not going to do that, right? We're going to keep Cluster bombs well past their shelf life, well past the point where they can be safely used, well past the point where you're going to have a 14% dud rate, and those dud rates are going to start to, to skyrocket, because he wanted to make sure that we have a replacement for the weapon. And unfortunately, his his idea of having a replacement for the weapon is one that would have kept the munitions in perpetuity in, in the US arsenal. Uh, fortunately, though, his, uh, his amendment didn't go anywhere and uh, now looks to be dead. Uh, then we had Sarah Jacobs and Ilan Omar, and theirs uh, was very simply no transfer of cluster munitions. Period. Right, just no transfer. Very simple uh, legislation. It was a one pager, and it spoke to you know the the problems of the munitions and that we would not transfer them to to any country. Unfortunately, it was getting an awful lot of support, at least unfortunately, from the, the Democratic leadership perspective. Uh, I, I think that the, the Democratic leadership was very concerned that uh, this was going to make it into the NDAA. Uh, there were about 100 plus, uh, 140 congresspeople who uh, were supporting this, and there was a real concern that this one might actually pass. The, the Senate was also very concerned with that. And so it was then decided, we're going to take that and roll that into a different amendment. And this had, you know, the the Jacobs and Omar uh, amendment initially had bipartisan support. Uh, You had some of the the Freedom Caucus uh, members like Gates uh, supporting it as well. So it was bipartisan. And this was why it had such, there was such concern from the leadership that President Biden was going to get a loss, right? That he was going to be told, no, you can't do this, right? You want to send this bomb, but, but Congress is saying No. And so the the leadership decided to poison pill it. Uh, they took the amendment from Jacobs and Omar and rolled it into a separate amendment from Matt Gates and led by Marjorie Taylor Greene. And by giving it to Marjorie Taylor Greene, an individual who is seen as, I mean, for, forgive me, but among the most reprehensible uh, members of of the U.S. Congress because of her just outright racist and highly problematic anti-LGBTQ, et cetera, policies that she supports. And so by giving it to, to Green and having her as the name on the amendment, that it would die. And they were right. And that amendment died and it did not make it into the NDAA. And so it looks as if all of this is dead. In fact, we know that the cluster munitions, the initial transfer of cluster munitions has already happened. Uh, there were some tens of thousands of American uh, M864s already forward deployed in Europe as part of American stockpiles. And so those have already been transferred to Ukraine. And we're now awaiting the further transfer of M864s from the United States. And eventually, we're going to see hundreds of thousands of, sh- of shells provided to the Ukrainians and used on Ukrainian soil.
1: That whole story of how these bills rose and then died via Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, there was a a really great deep dive done on our other podcast, Deconstructed by our colleague, Ryan Grimm, and I encourage people to check that out as well, where they get into the entire TikTok of how that bill, uh, how those amendments ended up rising and then falling very quickly because of everything you just said about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mark Galasko, we want to thank you so much for all of your work and your insights on drones, on cluster bombs, on basically all matters of war. And thank you so much for being with us here on Intercepted.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you being concerned about this and and keeping it in the news and 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 I appreciate it.
2: That was Mark Galasko the military advisor at PAX, a Dutch NGO where he works to protect civilians in armed conflict. And that does it for this
1: episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Will Stanton mixed our show, and this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what amount, makes a real difference— if you haven't already, please subscribe to this program. You can find Intercepted anywhere you get your podcasts, and you can leave us a rating or review. That also helps other people to find us. If you want to give us feedback of any kind, you can email us at, at theintercept.com. That's theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain.